Well, last week we spent some time talking a lot and about something that we hold very, very highly here, meaning God's complete and total free control over every single thing in his creation. The problem is if, that if, if you take that one doctrine of God's sovereignty and look at it by itself, it doesn't necessarily help us that much unless you put it together with God's character and God's attributes. The idea of a God that controls every living thing, every atom, every possible inch of his universe doesn't really comfort us very much unless we also combine it with the reality that God is good and God loves us. And so this week, Paul brings that together. And the doctrine of God's sovereignty, it can be cold unless we bring it together with God's love. God is not only sovereign, but God, in fact, loves us. How can we be assured that God loves us? Well, I'm glad that you asked, because Paul's going to tell us all about that this morning. If you're not there, Romans chapter 8. I just realized, as uh, Piero was saying that, that in the Pew Bibles, it's chapter 8 on page 888. I don't know if we're, we've been on that page for a long time. I understand. We're making progress, right? Last week, we spent looking again at God's sovereignty how that relates to other doctrines we've been studying and the assurance that God will keep his promises. If God isn't sovereign, he can't keep his promises. If God isn't sovereign, he has no basis to, we have no basis to believe he can keep his promises. If God isn't sovereign, we have no basis to believe he hears our prayers and the Holy Spirit can actually mold them into the will of God so that we get God's will for us. If God isn't sovereign, then he can't use every situation, all things, for our good. God has to be sovereign. And we said last week our ultimate assurance is God's sovereignty. We're going to end our mini-series this week on assurance. And as we dig into the depths of the love of God for his children, let's look again at Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul says and begins with a summary statement, what, sh what then shall we say to these things? Which is a great biblical Greek way of saying, so what? So what do we say about all this? You've given us this great truth in all of these chapters, especially five through eight, but, but, but what? So what does that mean? What does that mean for my Monday? These things, Paul says, of course, everything that has gone before, right? Everything he's written before, rather. But I think expressly chapters five through eight, and probably particularly everything he talked about last week in verses 26 through 30. The idea of God using all things for our good, which is our sanctification and our growth, right? Paul answers his own question with another question. Uh, what can we say? So what? Well, how about this? If God is for us, who can be against us? How's that for us? So what? Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who is no more powerful than the almighty creator, sovereign God? Inferred answer, no one. There's absolutely no one who could be against us. But I want us to look at what does it mean for God to be for us, right? 
Again, we need to bring it back to our context. God is for us in his sovereign ability to make all things work for good. And last week we defined the good as what verse 29 said, being conformed to the image of his son. So God is for us to make all things work together, put all the pieces together to grow us in holiness. That's what he's for us for, to grow us into the image of his son, to, to glorify himself, right? When we drop the words for us, the problem is just like when it said in verse 28 that God works all, all things together for our good, we're tempted to define the good, we're also tempted to define for us. And for me means anything I want God to do for me. It means any situation that I think God should do for me. It means any dream that I have in my head, God is now my divine dream maker. He can make it happen for me. That's not what this passage is saying. We need to define it as what is God is doing to glorify himself by conforming us to the image of his son. That is our main purpose in life. And one of my eighth grade students got that right off the bat this week. What is our purpose in life? It is to glorify God right away. I was like, so proud. Glorify God. That is why we are here. And everything is used in that, in that uh, way that God is going to glorify himself through us. We can glorify God in our lives because God is for us. And in order to do that in whatever situation he calls us to, how do we know this is true? Well, that's what he says in verse 32. Look at verse 32. Because, right, inferred, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Just like you drew, hopefully, with a, a pen or a pencil in your Bibles last week, an, a bracket between 28 and 29, you guys should do that with 31 and 32 because it answers that question. And if you're, if you're here today and you need a scripture to memorize, I believe every Christian should memorize 31 and 32. Because when we have those moments of doubt, we have the reason why. How do we know God is for us? He says, look at the cross. How do we know God loves me? He says, look at Jesus. Look at what he gave you. Look at what he did for you. Look at how he didn't spare his own son. Not only that, he will continue to be for you, working all things for your growth together with our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's another how much more argument, right? It's the greater to the lesser. He gave us Jesus. How much more is he going to help you on your Tuesday when you need him? Of course he will. So the first point, I'll say this way. Christ's sacrifice is the assurance that God's love is real. Christ's sacrifice is the assurance that God's love is real. Look at the text. I want us to pull out four truths that we can hang our hats on here. God gave sacrificially. He gave intentionally. He gave graciously. And God will continue to give faithfully. First, the text tells us that God gave sacrificially. The text says that he, meaning God the Father, did not spare his son. He didn't spare him any ounce of his wrath. He didn't spare him any ounce of punishment. He didn't spare him any ounce of mocking or beating or torturing or any amount of pain on the cross. He didn't spare him any of that. He didn't hold it back. He let him experience all of that. And he did that because he loves us. 
He sent his own son to this sin-cursed planet to be rejected, arrested on fake charges, beaten, mocked, tortured, executed on a Roman criminal's cross. And he didn't spare him any, anything that came at him. And he certainly didn't spare his own wrath for sin because true love is sacrificial. Second, we see in this text that God gave intentionally. Who was the one who gave his son? It was God the Father. Who put Jesus on the cross, right? The ultimate question, the ultimate answer is God the Father in his sovereign plan, right? Octavius Winslow put it this way, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Jude for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. That's who gave Jesus. So he gave sacrificially, but he also gave intentionally. God gave us Jesus as part of the plan. We've been going through the book of Acts on Wednesday nights, also Wednesday mornings, but Wednesday nights we just started and we're just getting into chapter 5, I believe it is. Men, if you're not there, please join us at one of those uh, Wednesday nights uh, as well, Wednesday morning, 7 a.m., shameless plug. But when we get to a passage like Romans 8.32, right, we, we put pieces together like in places like Acts. And if we go to Acts 2.23, we see that the cross was God's plan. Acts 2.23, it says, this Jesus, this is Peter talking, this Jesus delivered up and according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Did you catch that? See the intentional plan of God from the beginning. Peter in his first sermon says that. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God himself. He gave sacrificially, but he also gave intentionally. Third, this passage tells us that God gave us, gave graciously, meaning he gave freely. He wasn't forced. He didn't hold back. He didn't give Jesus his son begrudgingly. He gave willingly. Think about the gracious givers in your life. How people give above and beyond. How we give above and beyond for our children. How we have such sweet saints at Highlands that continue to give with their time and their service joyfully. It's a blessing for them to do so. But along those lines, it's important to clarify and to say that Jesus gave himself willingly as well. This wasn't just the Father's plan. It's a huge mistake of the atheistic response and the problem of Christianity is that people say that, God, oh, well, God the Father just sent his son to die. That's divine child abuse. That's awful. I can't imagine a God that would do that. And while that is true, that God the Father did plan for the son to die, we just read it. The reality is that Jesus gave his life of his own free will. And we see it from Jesus' uh, words himself in a place like John chapter 10, verse 17. And Jesus speaking, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. So Jesus is not being forced to do this. Yes, it's obedience to the plan of the father, but Jesus is giving up his life out of his own free will. And fourth, God will continue to give faithfully. This is the, the kind of the so what of the end of the passage, right? Christ's sacrifice, church, isn't a one-time gift. It's truly the gift that shows that God will keep on giving. 
that God will continue to give us what we need to grow and glorify Him. Watch this, in all things, everything that comes our way, we have that guarantee that God will continue to give faithfully. And what's the evidence of how much He loves us? The cross. And so what we face, we know that God will continue to give faithfully. And Paul, I love the way he, he phrases this. He says, he's given us Jesus, so how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's like almost impossible for him to not be faithful. Paul says, how will he not give us everything we need? He has in the past. He's giving it to us right now, and he will in the future. How will he not give us what we need to glorify him? Of course he will. Of course he loves us. How will he not give us all things to glorify him in this season of stress and dysfunction, wherever you might be, at work or parenting, in our care of elderly parents, in our chronic illnesses or our battle with cancer? The next time you have one of those situations where you are, you are facing and finding yourself tempted to doubt God's faithfulness, church, look at the cross. Look backwards at the cross and see God's love is real. And Christ's sacrifice shows us that. Let's keep digging. Look at verse 33 of Romans chapter 8. He says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Paul is just rapid-firing rhetorical questions here to prove his point about God's love towards his children. And two rhetorical questions in particular here. One, who will bring any charge against God's elect? And two, who will condemn God's children? Same answer for both. No one. No one can do either of, neither of those things. Either, either, neither of those things. Who will bring any charge against the elect? The elect meaning Christians. We saw last week how in God's foreknowledge, God knows who are his children, right? God actually chooses his children. God knows his children. And there's nothing that can take his children out of God's hand. So who will bring a charge against God's child? No one. Absolutely no one. We will dive headfirst into the concept of election in the coming weeks in chapter 9 as we get there. And what's the context of this question, though? Probably, of course, both now, right? We, we have this comfort right now, but we also have it on Judgment Day. A picture in your mind, standing before Almighty God, right? All of us probably on our faces in complete and total terror, right? Before the judgment seat of Christ. And maybe this thought comes in your mind and said, who, is there somebody that is going to come forward and have something on me? Is there anyone that's going to accuse me of something? Not being a Christian? Is there somebody that's going to bring a charge that's going to blow my faith out of the water? He says, no. It cannot be. There will never be. For his children, that will never be. Likewise, who will condemn me? We saw in the first verse of chapter 8 that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is impossible for anyone to condemn us. Who will bring a charge? Who will condemn us? No one. And the reason why are four important things, again, they're embedded in the passage that he says. He said Christ died, he was resurrected, he's now at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. First, Christ died. These are important things. Just as, I mean, we just said it. God gave him 
He willingly went to the cross as the sacrifice for our sin in our place. But not only did he die, second, he was raised from the dead. He was resurrected, proving that a sacrifice was accepted. Third, he's at the right hand of God. If you're at the right hand of God, that's a position of power and authority. Christ not only died, not only resurrected and ascended, now he is at the right hand of God right now, ruling and reigning over every single thing in his creation and working all things for our good. We have that as our assurance. And fourth, he is interceding for us. This is a little different than we saw with the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit's interceding for us at that heart level, right? Understanding, interpreting our thoughts and then speaking them to the Father, right? And matching them up perfectly with the will of God. That's what the Holy Spirit does in interceding. Christ's role of intercession is a little different. Christ's role of intercession is the maintenance of who we are to the Father. No, he's mine. No, I died for him. No, he's one of our children. No, he is justified. She is forgiven. She is dearly loved by us. Christ intercedes for us in that legal kind of way, representing us as truly forgiven, as truly holy. And so we put all that together, and we see that the assurance of love again from the Father is Christ died, Christ was resurrected Christ is seated at the position of authority and he continues to intercede for us every single day. So what does all that mean? Well, Paul says then there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of God, of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? As it is written, for your sake, We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Who will separate us from the love of God? In other words, is there anything that will cause God to stop loving one of his children? Answer, no. Nothing. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Parents, we know this, right? There is nothing that can stop us from loving our children. Nothing that can separate us from the love that we have from our children. Look at the, situ- the situation list he gives us, right? He says, well, will tribulation do it? Tribulation meaning affliction, a-, a situation that has come up that's causing you trouble, whether that be a family crisis, a sickness, relationship issues, financial hardship. Can tribulation separate us from the love of God? He says, absolutely not. Does tribulation mean that God doesn't love you? No. What about distress? We all know what distress is because we're all familiar with the second part of that word, stress. That's where we get it from. Can stress and distress separate you from the love of God? He says, no. Can all the distress and stress in your life, is that an indication that God does not love you? No, absolutely not. We experience stress in all different ways. Stress is an emotional reaction to a tribulation. We have that one first, then we have stress because of the tribulation, right? What about persecution, meaning some sort of consequence for following Jesus? Soon after Paul's writing, Rome would capture Christians, hunt them down, and put them in an arena with lions to kill them for fun. That's persecution, right? We're probably not going to experience that in this country, but we experience a lot of persecution otherwise, and we're going to experience emotional persecution. 
We get marginalized all the time for being Christians. We're going to experience persecution in other ways, whether that be job loss, where we're sticking up for some God's law and God's ethics, biblical ethics and morality. We might experience persecution from friends and loss of relationships or things like that. But we have brothers and sisters around the world who are experiencing persecution in much harsher ways and their own loss of life by following Jesus. But even in that, will that separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? No, absolutely it cannot. If we're being persecuted for our faith, does that mean that God does not love us? No, absolutely not. What about famine? Meaning going without food because of a national crisis. If we're going through that, does that mean God doesn't love us? No. Nakedness, not intentional nakedness, but meaning I have no clothes to wear today, which nobody in this room can relate to because all of our closets and drawers are full of clothes. The idea that we don't actually have anything to put on our bodies is completely foreign to us as Americans. But that's what this is talking about. Imagine getting up and not having a shred of clothing to wear, to put on. Will that separate you from Christ Jesus? No. Will danger, will, will facing the sword, meaning uh, a military response or powers that overtake us, no. Christians have always faced all seven of these things, and he quotes right there in the passage, Psalm 44, 1, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's how God's people have been looked at. That's how God's people were looked at in the Old Testament. That's how God's people are being looked at today in many places of the world. These seven situations, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, the sword, we contrast that with the four things that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. We have these seven situations, right, that are nasty situations that nobody wants to go through. And then we have the four things that God did for us in Christ Jesus. He died. He was resurrected. He ascended to the Father as is seated in the position of authority in the right hand, and he is interceding for us. You put all those things together, and I'll say this for the second point. Christ's work is our assurance that God's love is constant even in hard times. Christ's work is the assurance that God's love is constant, even in hard times. Situations can get difficult, right? We talked about that last week. Sometimes we just need to acknowledge that situations are difficult. Christianity is not just painting over something with a white brush and saying, okay, well, cancer's here, so God works all things together for good. No, cancer's terrible. We need to admit that. We need to realize that the situation may not be good, but God working in that situation to grow us into the image of his son is good. God's love remains constant even in the midst of hard situations. And how do we know that? Take any situation. Paul named seven of them. But create more because there's more. Put that up against the work of Christ and you see the love of God is constant because of the work of Christ. He's crucified, resurrected, ascended to the Father. He is ruling and reigning. He is interceding for us. Church, what this means for us, this is important. What this means for us is we can never look at a situation in our lives and surmise from that situation, no matter how bad it is, that God doesn't love me. And that's the problem. We get in these situations and we think, this is so bad where's God? 
Doesn't he care? Isn't he here? Doesn't he love me? Because we look at this situation and we say, this is impossible. Well, yeah, from a human standpoint, it is. But you have to separate situations from the reality of God's love for you. And every fiber in our fallen brains is going to want to connect those things. Well, I had a terrible day today. Whatever happened, therefore, God's mad at me. God doesn't love me. Whatever, God's punishing me. It's not true, according to this passage. It can't be true. Cancer can't do that. Chronic illness can't. Divorce can't. Job loss can't. Whatever. Financial hardship. Parenting issues that make you want to go insane. That can't do it. Name any hardship that comes your way. Any one of them. And God's love remains constant in it. You've got to separate those things from that. I'll give you three case studies. First, Israel. Then Jesus. Then Paul himself. First, Israel. God's chosen nation. The ones who were the recipients of the love of God became a nation, got the covenant, the law, the temple, everything. Yet, they rejected God. Yet, they broke the covenant. And as a result of their unfaithfulness, they were exiled. They became the laughingstock of the whole world. Yet, God continues to love them. Hosea 14.4 puts it this way. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. Don't you think the average Israelite who was faithful to God all of that time when he saw all that happening, all the exile, all the loss of life, all of that was tempted to think God doesn't love us anymore? And yet he says time and time again, Israel, I have loved. Second, of course, we see Jesus God, the Son in the flesh, came to earth. And what did it consist of while he was at, uh, here on earth? Homelessness. He had no money. Probably just had the clothes on his back. He was increasingly an enemy of the state, rejected by his own people, the Jews. Ultimately, he was executed in the lowest and most humiliating and painful way to die ever on the cross at that time. Yet was he loved by God completely and perfectly. With an audible voice, his followers heard God say in Matthew, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And Jesus went through all of that. Do you think that Jesus maybe in his humanity was tempted to think, does the father really love me because he's letting me go through all of this? I think we have that recorded in the Garden of Gethsemane, don't we? So there's any other way that we can do this. Please, but not my will, your will be done. And third, the Apostle Paul, he lives a similar life. Let's read of how he describes himself. Here's, here's Paul's little diary of what's going on in Paul's life. Maybe this was an early Facebook post, we don't know. Chapter 11, verse 23 of 2 Corinthians. Are there servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, Danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, and danger from false brothers. 
in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all those things, this always cracks me up. This is a daily pressure on me and anxiety for all the churches. (laughs) On top of all that, I'm a pastor and I've got churches and sheep. This is... Do you think that Paul was tempted to think in all of that? Maybe his fifth whipping? He was tempted to think, is this really what I'm supposed to be doing with my life? Is God's hand of blessing upon my life? Does God really love me? Yet he writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God, watch this, who loved me and gave himself up for me. What is the truth? What is the anchor that stops Paul from spiraling? He says, God loves me. And how do I know that? Because he gave himself up for me. The work of Jesus Christ shows us that God's love is constant, even in hard times. And so Christians, hard situations does not and cannot mean that God does not love you. Rather, we look back to the work of Christ as our proof, as our evidence, that above, over and above any situation, we see it as our assurance that God's love is constant. It is tempting in hard times to feel that God has abandoned us. But Christians, through Christ, we know that is impossible. Not only in situations, but there's no condition in the universe that could ever separate us from the love of God. That's where Paul goes next. Look at 37 of Romans 8. No, he says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Paul answers clearly, can anything separate us from the love of God? He says no. No is not actually in the Greek, which surprised me, but rather there's the word for saying, on complete contrast, here's the truth. Like, there's nothing that would, would ever make this true. Much rather, more than that, right? Rather than that, I'm going to show you why it's not true, he says. This is another famous verse, and of course, taken out of context. Look at a few things here with me. First, he states it clearly. Can anything make God stop stop loving us? Definitive answer, absolutely not. There's no way. Nothing can separate us. Second, he says, in all these things. Hard situations are certainly not limited to the seven situations that he talked about, right? Life is great at creating different hard situations that pop up out of nowhere. He says, in all these things, we are, there are countless situations where we find ourselves, and the point is, no matter what, no matter what situation we find ourselves in, we cannot be separated from God's love. And third, what on earth does he mean by more than conqueror? It's like something that goes on T-shirts and coffee cups. It's like, I'm, a, I'm more than a conqueror. What on earth does that mean? Well, think, look at it this way. If someone were to come into a city and conquer a city, right? Army comes in, knocks down the city walls, 
burns everything else to the ground, kills everybody, maybe takes everybody else slaves, and that's it, and they walk away, and it's a pile of rubble, right? That's a conqueror, right? To be more than a conqueror is to go into a city and take over that city, and then to make that city your city, to make that city then work for you and your glory. And so Paul's saying, guess what? It's not only that Christ has defeated sin and death, but also in any and all situations, Christ, you are then more than a conqueror through Christ because those situations, guess what, now work for you. Those situations that look hard, those situations that are hard, now work for you, work for me. How? To make me more into the image of Jesus Christ. There's a word subjugate. It means to, to rule over something, to do something in a way that, that, that has authority over that situation. You then, you then change the situation then for your good. That's what, that's what Paul means with more than a conqueror. Paul's saying any situation we face is not merely conquered by the love of God for us in Christ Jesus, but it's turned around and it's made to work for our good somehow even if the situation is not good. That's what we have to remember. No matter what is going on, he says there's nothing in God's whole created order that can separate us from God's love. And he goes on in this poetic kind of Greek kind of way to name that in several ways. He says, first, neither life nor death, right? If we live, we're under the banner of God's love. But if we die, we are raised to continue to live forever under the banner of God's love. Paul said elsewhere, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's what are you going to do? Kill me? Cool. I get promoted. I'm going to be in an eternity forever under the banner of God's love. So life nor death will be able to separate us. The second, neither angels or rulers. Some of you might have principalities or heavenly rulers. This refers to spiritual beings. There's no spiritual beings, angels or demons that can separate us from the love of God. It could, of course, mean earthly rulers, but I think in the context with angels, it probably means the spirit world. There's no evil spirits that can separate you from the love of God. There's no angels that can come down and take away that love. Third, neither things present nor things to come. No matter what's going on right now, or those 600,000 things that you're worried about happen that might, will happen, that, that probably won't happen. It cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ. Fourth, nor powers. Again, this is likely referring to earthly powers. Governments, armies, political parties. Thank the Lord. Political parties can never separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nor height, nor depth most likely referring to any place that you can possibly go. There's no place on this earth, no matter the highest mountain or the depths under the sea, that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And sixth, he summarizes all that by saying, there is nothing else in all creation which can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? How? Because Christ was victorious, and that means, ultimately, that God's love will be victorious too. That's why he says, right, I am sure that death nor life, angels, rulers, nor, will be able to separate you from the love of God. Where? In Christ Jesus. No Christ Jesus, this deal's off. 
But because of Christ Jesus, we are more than conquerors. So I'll say the third point this way. Christ's victory is our assurance that God's love will be victorious too. Christ's victory is our assurance that God's love will be victorious too. Christ is the one who is truly more than a conqueror. And through our union with Christ, we then are also more than conquerors. And there are two really important words in verse 37 that, that help us see that. Look again. He says, No, in all those things we are more than conquerors through him. That's Christ. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Without Christ, we are not more than conquerors. Without Christ, we're not even victorious. But in Christ and through Christ, we are more than conquerors. And so God's love is victorious over any and all situation that comes into a believer's life because Christ won the victory. If Christ did not walk out of that tomb, this means nothing. But he did. And so therefore, God's love will be victorious. And we see that love in our lives. Any and all situations then in the present, and I, maybe some of you need to camp out on this uh, nor things present, nor things to come, because I know my sheep, and I know a lot of sheep like to worry about things that aren't happening. We've got a lot of worriers. It's natural to do that, right? This is a good one to underline, right? Not anything that is happening now, nor there's 30 things that you're worried about happening tomorrow is going to be able to separate you from the love of Christ. So how do we know Christ is going to love me? If all those things actually do happen, Christ is victorious. Christ has the victory. And we are united in Christ through faith. And so therefore, we need to be reminded of that. Christ's victory has the victory now, and it will be in the future. There's no situation in the future where Christ's love will not be there. And sometimes I need to say that in pastoral counseling. Sometimes we just keep taking people, and, and so what if that happens? Well, then this, well, so what if that happens? Well, then this, and, and I try to get them to the very, very end, right, where they try to say something catastrophic, and then I die or something. Well, then you'll be with Christ, right? Or then this will happen, the worst possible thing that they could think of, then this will happen, and Christ will be there with you. That's the point. It doesn't matter what situation. Christ will be there with you, and Christ loves you. God's love will be victorious over any and all situations in our lives. Why? Because he's using them for our good and our growth. Paul, again, gives testimony to this in 2 Corinthians 4. Very familiar verse to us. Very familiar passage, one we don't really like to read. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 says this, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Remember what Paul rattled off a few moments ago about the things that he was experiencing? He's being beaten, light and momentary, being whipped five times, being shipwrecked and being adrift in an open sea for a day and a half. Is that a light and momentary affliction? Sleepless nights, constant danger, anxiety, going hungry. Those are not things that I would necessarily classify as light and momentary afflictions. 
but he does. It's natural for us to be tempted to think that in hard times, God doesn't love us or has abandoned us. But in order to pray in those times, we need to have solid theology. We've got to have that set in our minds before we get there. The time to have your theology set is not in the middle of distress and tribulation. The time to have your theology set is now. So that when, sorry, I love you. I got to tell you the bad news. So that when you get to distress and tribulation, which we all will because of a little thing called reality and sin, we're ready. We have it firmly fixed in our minds. There is nothing that will separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He, through him, I'm actually more than a conqueror. We can give testimony, situations that have happened in our lives that we can all look back upon and say, I would not want to go through that again for all the money in the world. But boy, did I grow. But boy, did God do a work. That's when he does his work, church. It's not the situation. We can't run from these situations. We've got to be ready for these situations. And that's how Paul can say those situations are light and momentary. And they're preparing for me a weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. As Christians, we never suffer meaninglessly. It's always at work in us. Church, we just got to get with the program. When we're suffering, we have to realize this is working for my good because of what Christ did for us. And then you have to embrace every single lesson in holiness that comes your way in the midst of it. Matthew Henry put it this way. He's prepared a crown and a kingdom for us. And he will give us what we need on the way to it. There's a crown and a kingdom waiting in heaven for us. And he's going to give us what we need on the way to get it. We all face situations in our lives that we feel are way more than light and momentary afflictions. Yet, yet, because Christ was victorious, God's love will be victorious in those situations too. We can talk about God's sovereignty and we must But none of that matters unless we know, unless we are assured that God loves us on a deep and personal level. And so here's the big idea. Christ is our deepest assurance of God's love for us. Christ is our deepest assurance of God's love for us. When we talk about the love of God, it's at a personal level. We can look at doctrine. We do look at doctrine. We have to look at doctrine because that informs our theology and informs our lives. But if you take a doctrine like God's sovereignty, and if you don't pair it with God is good and God loves us, it's cold. It's meaningless. We have to look at the full character of God. Christ's sacrifice is our assurance that God's love is real. Jesus really went to the cross. He really died. He really was resurrected. And now he really is sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And he really is ruling and reigning over every single situation in your life. And it's transforming every single one of them for your good to be conformed to his image. That's how we know God's love is real because of the work of Christ. And Christ's work is our assurance that God's love is constant, even in hard times. There is no situation, no matter how hard, how dark, how hopeless, that can tell us that God doesn't love us. Actually, quite the contrary. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And Christ's victory is our assurance that God's love will be victorious too. God will bring us home, church. God will bring his people, his children home. 
God's forgiven you of your sins in Christ, and God is sovereign over every single circumstance, and He is bringing you on the way home. This means, and this is super important, this means we are not victims of our situations. We are not victims of our circumstances. Christians can never play the victim card. This verse says we are victors in our situation. We can't be the victims if every single thing God is using for our good and His glory. We can't be the victims if there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We are victors in our situation. What is our deepest assurance in our heart of hearts that God is good and He loves us? We look to Jesus. And so church, as we, as we kind of land the plane here, I've got to say this, right? Because there's probably people here who aren't Christians. And the idea is this. This is, if you are not a Christian, I love you. Thank you for coming. None of this applies to you. These, this is for God's children. And so I beg you, with all of this and all of that that's going on out there in the world, why would you not repent and come to Christ? Why would you not trust in Him? And why would you not have that banner of God's love that is over you in His sovereignty? But Christians, for us, this should be our delight. This should be our comfort. This should be our joy. This should be our encouragement our deepest assurance in our heart of hearts that God is good and He loves us is His Son, Jesus Christ. Father, thank You for Your goodness. Thank You for Your love. This is a love that on a human level we can't even comprehend. We, we try to love like this, Lord, but we cannot because we're human and we're finite and we're sinful. And I do pray that we would love more like this. But Lord, more than that, that as we face situations, as we see situations, as we worry, Lord, would we be reminded that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And our ultimate proof of that is what you have done in Jesus, your son. We ask that you would build up your church through it, and we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.